Good morning. Can you believe we are almost through three months of a sabbatical of our senior pastor, and we are through almost three months of looking at the minor prophets? And I don't know if, uh, if anyone else feels this, but like sometimes it's hard to breathe when I hear so much from the minor prophets. These are hard truths. And so we are going to explore some more hard truths this morning from a minor prophet named Zephaniah. And I'm hoping you will start off by praying with me. God, we desperately need you. We need to hear from you and not from a man. We need to, for you to make this word come alive in our minds and in our hearts. We need for your spirit to descend, oh God. God, as I speak this morning, may Jesus be exalted. May we be a people who listen to your voice, who receive your correction, who grow in our trust in you, and by your spirit and by what Christ has done for us, that we would be a people who draw near to you. Speak now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Zephaniah. Zephaniah was an Old Testament prophet, and we are going to start by reading from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to do what I have been doing fairly consistently, which is taking you through a little bit, taking us through a little bit of the history, so that when we hear the words of these prophets, we can understand who they were talking to, the circumstances in which they were speaking, and how the people might have heard what these prophets were saying. So we're going to start in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. Are you ready? Yvonne, are you ready? The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. All right, we're going to focus for just a couple of minutes on this idea of this was a prophet who spoke in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon. He was king of Israel. So you'll recall that we've talked through the history of this ancient kingdom, Israel. Remember, Moses had brought the people out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Eventually, a, a kings are, are, are they, they conquer peoples. A kingdom is created. The first king is Saul. The second king is David, and so on, right? We've talked about this a couple of times. And then eventually, there is a, essentially like a civil war, that there's a split in the country, that this nation, this kingdom, Israel, splits into two. The north becomes the northern kingdom of Israel, and the south, the southern kingdom of Judah. And you will recall that we talked about the northern kingdom of Israel was plunged into idolatry and wickedness immediately, from the get-go. It was the foundation of that nation. And God many, many years later, uses a northern king, another kingdom in the north called Assyria and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. Do you remember that? Well, God also had this southern kingdom of Judah, and it was wicked, but in a sense, 
comparatively less so. It had more faithful kings than the northern kingdom of Israel. And at the time that the northern kingdom of Israel was being overrun by Assyria, the king in the southern kingdom of Judah was a man named Hezekiah. And you may remember a few weeks ago I said Hezekiah for president. All right? Well, Hezekiah is this man Josiah's great-grandfather. And so it's only about 80 years since the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel that Josiah becomes king in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he comes to become king in, a, in an inauspicious way. His grandfather Manasseh started off horribly wicked, bringing, bringing all kinds of idol thing, idols and the like into the temple, doing all kinds of horrible things. Toward the end of his reign, though, God raises up this same kingdom, Assyria, captures King Manasseh, takes him to yet another foreign country, Babylon, where he is put in chains. That's the king. He repents, seeks God, and God restores him to the kingship of Judah. And in the end of his reign, his kingdom is righteous. Unfortunately, his son Ammon learned from him when he was a younger man. Ammon was so wicked that his kingdom, his, his reign lasted for only two years. And his own servants murdered him in his own house. And they installed, installed this young person, Josiah, to be king. You know how old Josiah was when he became king? Parents, get ready. Eight. He was eight years old when he became king. And when he turned 16, he began to seek the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And then when he turned 20, he began to purge Judah of all kinds of wickedness, of all kinds of idols, of all kinds of idol worship. In fact, he was so zealous for God that he went into the northern territory, what had been the northern kingdom of Israel, where there were still Jewish people, and he went and took out their idols as well. Very zealous for God. And a fundraising campaign, a capital campaign gets kicked off. They need to renovate the temple of God in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the capital city of Jerusalem. There's the temple of God. And they, they, Josiah wants to clean up the temple of God. It's in disrepair. He's going to fix it. And so he orders the priests, take all the money we've been raising and start, to start this renovation project. And as they start it, you'll never guess what they found in the temple of the living God. The Old Testament. They found a copy of the book of the law of the Lord as it was given through Moses. Now let that sink in for just a second. So when we talk about uh, in our modern age where the word of God should be revered, but it's not even proclaimed, oftentimes in places that say the name of Jesus, that's not anything new. That these people, in their temple worship, had no word of God. And so Josiah, when he hears this news, and you'll get most of this information, most of this history from both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and I encourage you to read it. But listen to what Josiah does when the book of the law of the Lord has been discovered and the, the servants bring him the book of the law of the Lord and they read it to him. Listen to what he says. This is 2 Chronicles chapter, four, or chapter 34, verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Do you know what that means? 
That's like an outward show of your heart breaking, you're grieving, you're in mourning. That's what the, the way that, that culture spoke. He is grieving about what he hears God command and what he sees his people and himself doing. And he says to his, to his servants, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel, that northern kingdom that doesn't even exist anymore, it's just a territory now, in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Okay, so all these people, then, Josiah then gathers all of these people, people from Israel, people from Jerusalem, people in his court, and he reads to them the words of the book of the law of the Lord. And listen to this commitment that he makes. It's amazing. Second Chronicles chapter 34, beginning at verse 31. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. Benjamin was one of the territories in, the, in, the, in, the, in what had been the northern kingdom of Israel. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And all God's people said, amen, right? Like, where are we putting that guy on the ballot, right? Don't we want Josiah? Restore righteousness. Restore, restore faithfulness to God, Josiah. And so you can imagine that when this prophet Zephaniah comes and speaks in that context, he's probably going to be like, finally, you got it right. Finally, you people are worshiping Almighty God. He's going he's gonna to render this heavenly attaboy. Or does he? Let's open up back to Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 2. And this is how Zephaniah begins. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Cataclysmic. Like end of the world stuff. Like this, I was talking to a friend of mine about this last night, a friend of mine, Paul, back in Richmond, and he said, Dan, that, that, sounds, like, that sounds like almost the flood part two, even though God said he's not going to do another flood. I was like, yes, it's cataclysmic. And he goes on, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, a false god of the time, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down, and get this, listen to this, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and also yet swear by Milcom. Milcom was a false god of a people called the Ammonites, one of the neighboring countries. And so what he's saying is that people were saying, yeah, almighty God, you're fantastic, I worship you. And then going over and talking to Milcom, the Ammonite false god, and doing the same thing. And Zephaniah sums it up this way, 
that, he's going to, that God is going to stretch out his hand on those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now, I'm going to ask you, how do you reconcile these two things? You've got this godly reign of King Josiah, and you've got this prophecy of destruction from Zephaniah, and he's saying that the people are doing evil and wicked things. How can you reconcile those two things? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us. Do you know how we reconcile it? The people were faking it. The people were faking it. I read this quickly, and I wonder if you caught it back in 2 Chronicles 34, beginning at verse 32, when it said, Josiah made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in this worship. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel, and he made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. And there's, if you miss those two hints that he's making them do this thing, there's another hint right there, and it says, all his days, all Josiah's days, meaning when Josiah's gone, this behavior will change. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And in case there is any doubt about whether the people are faking it, there was another prophet during Josiah's reign, and his name was Jeremiah. That's a name you've probably heard of much more than Zephaniah. And Jeremiah, prophesying during the reign of King Josiah, says this. Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. And I, if you don't, Would you close your eyes and just listen to this for a second? Because essentially what Jeremiah is going to say is that that northern kingdom of Israel acted like a whore, and God wiped it out. And God's expectation was that the southern kingdom of Judah would look upon Israel, see what they had done, see how God responded, and that they would change. That's God's expectation. And I'm going to read it to you from the prophet Jeremiah. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this... And this is the punchline. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. You see, God's not fooled. God knows when his people are faking it. Pretense, it's a sham, it's a lie, it's false. Can I ask you, Are you faking it? Are you faking it? I look out on a nation that's crumbling and I say, where is the church? Church, are we faking it? 
Are we satisfied coming in here and gathering together and then going out and satisfying ourselves? Husbands, are you here because your wife makes you come? We shouldn't laugh at that because that was not intended to be a joke. Moms, do you do all this religious activity, go to ladies' Bible study, do the mops thing, put your kids in Christian school as a hedge against the possibility that they, that they might turn away when they're teenagers, and all you really want is you want them to survive their teenage years and make moral decisions. Is that how you're using the church? Teenagers. I was once a teenager. Are you tolerating this church thing because either your friends are here or because you feel like you have to because mom and dad make you when you know doggone well that when you get out of the house, whether that's college or you start a job, you can finally walk away from that thing because you, you don't have to be here anymore. Which, by the way, if you believe the statistics is what the overwhelming majority of Christian teenagers are doing. Christian, close quote. Teenagers are doing... And for the rest of us, or for all of us, are we being religious or moral just to impress someone? Or are we keeping up appearances, because that's what we do here in North Texas? Or to say it more honestly, are we just trying to fool people? If you have been here over the past three months, if you have been listening to the Word of God proclaimed week in and week out, there is one thing that that I don't think God can say any more clearly. He hates that. Amen. He hates our phony religion. He wants no part of it. And he will bring judgment upon it. Zephaniah could not be more clear. In fact, Jesus calls out in Matthew chapter 15, many of you will know this passage. In Matthew chapter 15, when he's meeting with a bunch of religious people, this is what he says of them. He calls them hypocrites. You think you don't like hypocrites or hypocrisy. Let me tell you how God feels about it. Jesus says, this is, chapter, this is Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 17, or verse 7, you hypocrites. Well, did the prophet Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and now he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Zephaniah is very clear that God has a day in mind associated with that behavior. It's called a day of the Lord. And I'm going to read to you. This is Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, 
a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. And God says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. God has a day. Now, let me do this. I want to just take an aside for just a couple of minutes and talk about this idea of the day of the Lord, because that phrase appears over and again in the Bible, and it has different meanings for different contexts. But at bottom, in every one of them, it is that God will put up with sin for only so long. Does he love his people? Yes. Is he patient? Yes. Is he, is he steadfast in his endurance of us and his, and his waiting upon us? Yes. But throughout the scriptures, when the Bible describes the day of the Lord, it can describe it in a number of different ways. First, I want you to think about it as a cataclysmic event that impacts the whole earth, like the flood during Noah's time. Why did God bring the flood? Because his people were corrupt, they had abandoned him, and the earth was filled with violence. And if you remember Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God looked out over the earth, and all that he saw is that every intent, listen to this, every intent of man's heart was evil only, continually. And so the Bible opens up in the book of Genesis. We have the flood, and the Bible will close this cataclysmic event when Jesus returns and the end. And I mean the end, like there's nothing after the end. When the end happens, Jesus returns, and there will be no heaven and no earth because God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. So sometimes when you hear the day of the Lord, that's what God is talking about. He's talking about this cataclysmic worldwide event. But there are also cataclysmic events that are reserved for nations. I mentioned the northern kingdom of Israel just a few minutes ago, that God had prophesied to his people, turn back. Would you please turn back? Would you start to follow me again? I am bringing destruction. Turn back. And they didn't listen. And so God raises up another country, Assyria, and it wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. That's a day of the Lord. That's a day of God's wrath. Likewise, by the way, when Zephaniah here prophesies uh, uh, the day of the Lord, he makes very specific pro uh, prophecies about this southern kingdom of Judah, where he is a prophet. And he's saying, it's over. It's over. Remember that part I read to you that for as long as Josiah was alive, the people did what was right? Remember that? Guess what? Three months after he's dead... The country of Egypt comes up, takes out his son as king, installs another one of different son of Josiah's as king, and then forces Judah to pay tribute to Egypt. And about 22 years later, Judah itself is totally overrun and destroyed. Bodies strewn everywhere, people exiled, fields, crops destroyed, the king's house burned. And the temple of God burned and all the stones taken down. That's a day of the Lord, as Zephaniah prophesies, prophesies it. There are also cataclysmic events for cities. Who remembers the story of Sodom, right? There's a cataclysmic event for cities. You see how God can be global or God can hone in. Now get ready for this. God can have a day of the Lord, a day of judgment for individuals. Just one person. Hebrews chapter 9 
I believe it's verse 27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. God is preparing a day. And the point about it is that God will judge and punish sin and sinners. He will do it on the macro level, and he will do it on the individual level. And though there is sometimes confusion about whether the particular prophet or in the particular circumstance it's talking about macro or slightly less macro or micro, the point is the same, that God will not be mocked, especially by the people who claim to know him, and that he's bringing a day to punish All right, so in Zephaniah's prophecy, who does God say he is going to punish? Well, Zephaniah proclaims God's judgment on two different groups of people. Get ready, strap in. The first group of people, God's chosen people, the people of God. The people who I described just a few minutes ago who Moses had ushered out of Egypt and Joshua ushered into the promised land and David had reigned as king. The people who we know today as the Jewish people or the Hebrews or the sons of Abraham or the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the people of God. God's, do you get it? God is going to bring judgment on those people who, 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 it, who it seems as if belong to him and why? Why is he doing it? Well, we've already said it. Ze- Zephaniah summed it up in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 6. They have turned back from following the Lord. And when you read through Zephaniah, this turning back takes many forms. Sometimes it's worshiping false gods, which we saw already. And there are at least three references to that in this little short book of Zephaniah. Sometimes it's violence. Sometimes it's fraud. Let me read these three, these four to you, which, by the way, it's hard for us, I think, to sometimes make contemporaries some of the things that we read in the Old Testament, some of these prophets. Tell me how contemporary these are. This is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 1, when God is pronouncing, through Zephaniah, is pronouncing woe on this rebellious, defiled, and oppressing city, Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Anybody uncomfortable? She listens to no voice. If, any, if America has anything, it's a lot of voices. It's a lot of opinions, and we get in our echo chambers, and you think the way I think, so we chatter to one another, but if you don't think the way I think, we don't chatter at one another. We put comments in the internet, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the bottom part of the internet page where you leave comments, and we just throw barbs and hate and spew vitriol, but no one is listening. No one is listening. There is so much noise, so many voices. Who is listening? Are you? No one listens. Or how about accepting correction? I'll just cut to the chase. How many of y'all are good at accepting correction? Come on and finish the sermon if that's you. 
Maybe I should step down. We do not trust in the Lord. It's amazing the way God works. I had no idea what Scott was going to say when he came up here to talk about anxiety and we ought to worry. Do you know why we worry so much? Do you know why I worry so much? It's because we're not, I'm not trusting God. And then at the very end, is it any wonder we do not draw near to God? So the first group of people that God is going to punish are the people of God. Then there's the second group of people God's going to punish. It's pretty much everybody else. (laughs) Beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, Zephaniah will start talking about these cities in the west, and then there are nations to the east, and then there's nations in the south. There's a reference to Cush, which I believe is Ethiopia, and then there are nations to the north, and in in particular Assyria. And you may recall we've talked a couple of times about this about, about Assyria, and we've talked about Nineveh, the city in Assyria, where Nahum was a prophet. Remember Dave Job preached, and where Jonah was a prophet. Well, listen to what it says: is the thing that these nations had done. You ready? Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, God says when when he brings judgment on the, the surrounding, the people who are around the people of God, this is what he says it's for. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And specifically as it relates to Nineveh, he says in chapter 2, verse 15, this is the exultant city that lived securely that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. Very contemporary, is it not? God is going to bring judgment. And I ask you, are you in either of these two groups? Do you claim to be among the people of God, but your heart is far from him? Or are you just surrounding the people of God and in your pride saying, it's just me. I don't believe. I know I don't believe. I am, and there is no one else. Everything that exists is what I can see. They call that materialism, the predominant philosophy, and I would say ideology and potentially religion of our era. Do you come here If you are a religious person who has not surrendered your heart to God, and I'm going to go back through this list from Zephaniah 3.2, do you come here regularly but not listen? Do you refuse to make any effort to change, to receive correction in light of the Scripture you're taught or the Scripture you know already? That's a tough one, isn't it? Is it just the case that you simply have not trusted Christ, but he's an add-on to a life that you think is moral and good? Or have you made little to no effort to draw near to God? And then, by the way, blame God for not drawing near to you. That's a biggie. Listen to what God says about that in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12. He's so upset. He says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. 
those who say in, the, in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. He's a non-entity, a non-factor. Or do you fall in this second category, the pretty much everybody else category of you know you, you don't believe, you know you don't believe, and you're effectively a modern-day Ninevite? If you're in either of these camps, I want to warn you. And I want to do it as lovingly as I possibly can. Not because I'm angry with anyone, not because God is angry, but simply because God is just, God loves. And remember what we talked about when God gives a warning? Why does he give a warning? Because he loves us and he wants us to be transformed. He wants us to hear his word, to receive correction and to do it. So whether it is a cataclysmic event for a nation or death for one person, look, here's the warning. The day of judgment is coming. A day of wrath is coming for all of us. All of us are going to die lest Jesus come back and take the believers home first, right? A day is coming. It could be cataclysmic and global in nature. It could be more, more targeted than that. It could be you today, this afternoon, choking on something over lunch. A day of judgment is coming. Scary stuff and bad news. Oh, thank God it's not the end. <laughs> Did you know that Zephaniah tells us that in the midst of all of this bad news, there is good news? How do we avoid, according to Zephaniah, before Jesus has come? Listen to what Zephaniah says. How do we not be among the religious phonies, the religious sham artists, and how do we not be among the sort of everybody else outside looking in saying, I, I am, and that's all there is? He says in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Remember, the day's coming. You've got to act before the day gets here. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, and in case you missed all those warnings about the before, here's another one. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord. All you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Oh, praise God. Do you notice how what it says is that we are to be humble and seek righteousness? I want your mind to fast forward into the New Testament, and there is a person, there is a one who we know to be the righteousness of God, the one whom we are to seek, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says uh, in the Bible, that God's righteous, that Jesus Christ is God's righteousness. And unbeknownst to Zephaniah, but thank God, after the cross, after the resurrection, after the, the ascension of Christ into heaven, and after the New Testament is written, we know that to seek righteousness is to seek Jesus. And I wonder, have you? Because this day of wrath is coming. When, when, we, when somebody says, are you saved, or I am saved, do you know what they're saying they're saved from? From the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. And listen to this transaction, what, what Jesus has done for us. He says, I am going to pour out punishment on a sinful people. But then listen to what God has done. He sends a substitute 
Someone to stand in our place who was sinless, perfectly righteous, and that that person will take the punishment that is due to the sinner. And the sinner need only look at that substitute, put his trust in that substitute, in God's Son, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and God does something that is just mind-boggling. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who came from heaven to earth, takes on all of our sin as if he had done it. The New Testament says that he who knew no sin became sin. He became sin. He takes on all of the sin of all who put their hope and trust in him. And then, by the way, there's the second part of that transaction, is that he takes all of his righteousness and gives it to us. Like, talk about an unfair deal, right? But God loves us so much that he who became sin, he who, excuse me, he who knew no sin became sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. And that by putting our faith and trust in Christ, and I mean really, I'm not talking about I prayed a prayer a long time ago and I have not followed God at all. Listen, I've got to tell you, I don't know whether you're saved, but you need to work that out. And I wouldn't look too far back and say there has been no evidence of bearing fruit in my life that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. There's no indication that I've changed. There's no indication that I love. There's no indication that I want to spend time with God. All those things. We don't listen. If you're not listening to his voice, if you're not accepting correction, if you're not trusting in him, man, you need to work that out and seek Jesus. Get saved is the language we sometimes use. Get saved. But here's the beauty of it, and Zephaniah touches on it, that when we get saved, we don't only get an insurance policy that says we're not going to hell. If that's your motivation, we may have to go back to step one and get saved. What God is inviting us into is a relationship of such intimacy with him because of his son of such intimacy with him because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he sends his spirit to live in us. Listen to how Zephaniah describes it. In in Zephaniah chapter three, verse 14, like for those when God finishes his punishment and he pours it out on Jesus for those who are in Christ and he makes us pure. So you've got punishment, you've got purity and now you have praise. Listen to this. Zephaniah chapter three, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And by the way, you do not have to be an Israelite, one of God's chosen people, a Hebrew. You do not have to be one of those folks to take hold of this promise. If you are in Christ, this promise is for you. This promise is for me. The New Testament describes it that we are, you know this language, we are, Romans 11, we are grafted in to the people of God, right? Or Galatians, we are what? Adopted and we become sons. 1 John, we are made God's sons when we come to faith in Jesus. And more than that, he gives us his righteousness, 
He gives us his holiness. He gives us the ability to love. He gives us all of these beautiful things when he makes us his children. He makes us heirs of all of these promises. And so I go on Zephaniah 3.16, on that day, remember that day, it's coming. But on that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. Isn't that good news? Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice. Get this. Have you ever heard these words before? He, the God who made everything, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And that word exalt there, it has this connotation of leaping and dancing for joy. You ever see like a mom with their kid and, and the mom is just totally taken away with how much she loves that kid and she might be singing and they're playing and dancing with the kid, right? Beautiful picture. Even if you've never seen it, I think you can visualize it. Now visualize it. That's God with you. Amen. That is how much God loves you. He wants this intimacy with you, this rejoicing over you, this singing praises over you. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine that this God who made everything loves you so much that he would send his son for you to take the punishment we all deserve, to give us then his son's righteousness, and then to give us praise as if we did anything. Like I said, God loves you. The Bible is replete with examples. Zephaniah, just one of them. He loves you. And so will you receive him today? And unlike the folks in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 2, will you listen to his voice? Will you receive his correction? Will you trust in his son? Will you draw near to him? Because the Bible says, when you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, gracious God, almighty, we thank you, Lord, that though there is bad news, there is good news. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this image that I can't even get my head around of how much you would love us of how you would humiliate yourself for us, humiliate yourself for us on the cross, and then humiliate yourself by telling the world throughout all time that you would dance and sing for joy over us. God, would you make our hearts just open to hear you, to receive you, to love you, to worship you, to praise you, to know you, and not to be religious hypocrites, or those who say, I am, and there is no one else. And then God, taking hold of this, would you strengthen us in such a way that we can go out to a world that is dying and tell them of this great love? All for Jesus' glory, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.